Thank you, Royal Family. Let's give another round of applause for our band. We're getting ready to do the Lord's Supper, and Rick Cabrick is coming forward to do it. And as always, he's got a wonderful message loaded with information, I'm sure, to do this. And he is even dressed appropriately for it. So let's give a round of applause and a welcome to Rick Cabrick. Would the ushers please come forward and pass out the elements?
Okay. Good morning. So, let me begin. This is a prayer shawl. It is a, uh, a talit in the Hebrew. This would have been akin to what Jesus Christ wore, and I wanted to bring this up today as we go through preparing for our communion service. In the corners of this prayer shawl is the kanaf, and in the Hebrew that means wing. So to be under God's wing would be the prayer shawl. Attached to the prayer shawl is a, a, a tassel, and this is containing a blue cord. It's tied appropriately to reflect four spaces here that re- represent the letters yad Hey vav Hey, the name of the Lord, as we've studied before. Um, so we have the kanaf. In the, he- in the Greek, this tassel is called the krospidon. So you're going to see all of that fit together, so I just wanted to show you that. And when it says in the Bible to go into your tent, the talit means little tent. So when they would go into their tent to pray, this is what they would do. So I'm going to bring all that just to your attention as we go through. You can turn to Numbers, chapter 15, if you'd like. I'll be there in a minute. So the prayer shawl, wing, kanaf. We'll begin in Malachi chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. This is what the prophet Malachi said as a reference to the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Malachi 4.2, he said, through the prophet, God said, But for you who fear, who respect, who believe in me, who respect my name, the Son of Righteousness will come with healing in his wings. Now, S-U-N is used there because it's a condemnation uh, for Israel at the time who had a lot of worshiping of sun gods going on. But the phrase, the son of righteousness, means the real Messiah. When he comes, he will come forth with healing in his kanaf, in his wings. In Numbers 15, look at uh, verse 37. This is where it's introduced. The Lord said to Moses, tell the sons of Israel that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments on the kanaf throughout their generations and put a tassel on each corner, a cord of blue. Inside of here, there's one cord of blue. You'll see where that ties in in a minute. In Deuteronomy 22:12. It says, you shall make tassels on the four corners of the kanafs of your garments, the corners of your garments with which you cover yourself with. In Psalm 91.4, it says, he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings, his kanaf, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. In the New Testament, in Mark 6, verse 56, it says, wherever the Lord went... Wherever Jesus Christ went, they begged him to let them touch the corner of his cloak in the Greek, the krospidon. They begged him, let me touch that krospidon because there's healing in your wings. They knew the scroll of Malachi. Zechariah 8, 28, 23, I think, says a great prophecy. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts. The day will come when men shall grab the skirt of a Jew, the kanaf of a Jew, 
This is the end times now. And we will go and say, we will go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. The phrase skirt of a Jew is kanaf. It's the wing of the talit. So we have the Hebrew word kanaf, or wings, and it refers to the corner of a garment. The word seed seeth in the, in the Hebrew is the tassel, and it's on the corner or the kanaf of the garment. So remember the promise of Malachi 4.2. The Messiah will come with healing in his kanaf, in his wing. Now, Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And the Lord Jesus Christ said through Malachi that he would send a messenger. In uh, Malachi 3.1, it says, Behold, I, the Lord of hosts, I will send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. 400 years would pass and John the Baptist would arrive on the scene. Doing what? Preparing the way for the Messiah. Now, all this ties into Matthew 9 in a beautiful way. You can turn there. Matthew 9. Here's a miracle recorded for us. It's also recorded in Luke and in Mark. Pastors taught on it before. This is the healing or the miracle regarding the woman who had a bleeding issue. So remember what's happening here in Matthew 9. Jesus gets into a boat, crosses over the Sea of Galilee. He lands, he heals the paralytic. At the same time, he puts the scribes and the Pharisees in their place. He finds Matthew, and he says to Matthew, follow me. He's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. The Pharisees question his disciples, and Jesus said what should have been a very interesting thing to them. He said, go and figure this out. I will have mercy, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous like you, but I came to call the sinners. Then the disciples of John came up to him, and they were actually attacking him. And Jesus gave the parable, the Rick taught actually, of putting the new wine into the old wine skins. So amongst all this chaos, Jairus, a synagogue official, came up to him, and he said, my daughter has just died, but come and touch her, lay your hand upon her, and she will live. Interesting that there was a centurion who wasn't even a believer at, you know, for, for a while, but he, he came to Jesus and said, just say the word, and my servant will live. This guy was a synagogue official and said, you've got to come and touch him. Kind of interesting, just as an aside. But Jesus did it. He said, okay. He starts to follow him. All the people shoving around him. All the people pushing, shoving. And a woman who was diseased in Matthew 9.20, you can read it. It says, a woman who was diseased with an issue of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment. In the Greek, it's the cross bidon. She touched the tassel. And Jesus turned and said an interesting thing. Who touched me? And in the other accounts in the Gospels, remember, the disciples were saying, what do you mean who touched you? I mean, there's all these people crowding around. How are we supposed to know who touched you? But he knew that someone touched him because the power, the dynamis went out of him. It says he felt the power go out of him. He turned and said, who touched me? And the woman came forward and said, it was me. And he said, your faith has healed you. In fact, she was healed the moment she touched it. It's interesting that in this miracle, he didn't have to do anything. You see, it was the power of his word and the power of his, of his promise that was enough. What an application that should be to all of us.
The woman had tried for 12 years to be healed. She'd spent all her money, all of her energy. 12, by the way, is the number of ultimate authority. And here, ultimate authority was present. So she touched the hem of his garment. The word crossbedon is translated as a hem, but it's a tassel. It's a seed seed right here on the edge in the kanaf. It was required to be on the four corners of the clothing of Jewish men, especially those who had authority. And as I said, the special knots and everything, it has a lot of other meaning that we're not really studying today. But we find these tassels on the corners of these prayer shawls. And this was a prayer shawl, by the way, that Jesus would have worn all the time. The purpose of the tassels was to put forth that that person knew the word of God, to follow the commandments of God to announce the one that was wearing it has authority to speak the word of God. They represent the word of God, the promises of God. It represents the Messiah, the greatest promise that anyone can have. And Jesus Christ would have worn one all the time. So each tassel has to have a blue thread representing sin of man and the fact that that sin had to be dealed with, dealt with, and there's an application there. You see, at the time, blue was the toughest color to get. You, you couldn't just make it. I mean, it, it came from, remember we studied the worm that pastors taught on before? It also came from a particular snail, and it was reserved for royalty and for very wealthy people. In fact, there was only a couple ways to get it, and one was a snail. Get this, it took 12,000 of these snails to be crushed to make about a thimble full of blue, thr- of blue dye. So you can see how expensive and precious it was and the price that had to be paid to get it. And that's a reference to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was crushed. You know, there was things going on in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, right? They didn't know all this stuff. And then the, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I mean, all these, they, they tie together. So that blue was a reference to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would be crushed for our iniquities. And by the way, the Father said he was pleased to crush his Son for us. And all of that is represented by that blue thread in the cross beyond, the tassel, representing that sin had a payment and that, that, that Christ would make that payment for that sin, what we're celebrating today. So the tassels were associated with a person's authority. Remember Saul and David? David snuck up and behind Saul, cut off the hem of his garment. What did he cut off? The kenaf and the tassel. He cut off his authority. The word for him there in 1 Samuel 24, I think, is it is kenaf. The symbol of taking that kenaf and tassel was humiliation because it was a sign of his authority. And Saul thus knew that his time as king was coming to an end. In chapter 3 of Ruth, Ruth went to the threshing floor, remember, and slept at the feet of Boaz. And in the middle of the night, Boaz woke up, said, who are you? And she said, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, the kanaf, since you are a kinsman redeemer. She recognized that he was a kinsman redeemer. That was a foreshadowing of the Messiah and ultimate authority. By the time of the Lord's earthly ministry, man, as they usually do, it screwed things up. The meaning of the tassel had become distorted by men and become sort of a false status symbol. The tassels of some Pharisees were so long that they dragged on the ground. And it was that attitude that Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23, 5, when he said, You do all your deeds to be noticed by men, for look at you, you lengthen 
the cross be done, the tassel of your garments. So back to the woman on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. When she pressed through the crowd, she was a desperate woman. And it was a bold step for her to be out in public. You see, she was declared unclean by Levitical law. She wasn't supposed to be out. However, like many, she had nothing to lose at this point. She heard of Jesus, and she knew that if he was the Messiah, there was a healing in his wings, in the tassels of his garment. Those tassels were a point of contact, of comfort, of promise. They represented the word of God and authority, and that's the place where we all find healing in the needs of our life. Under his wings is where all mankind must go to find ultimate healing. She had heard that many were healed by him and that he taught with authority. She believed that Jesus was the Messiah. She believed the messianic promise from the scroll of Malachi. And she knew that healing would be found in his wings, in his kanaf. So, by faith she found him. By faith, she followed him. She found the opportunity, and by faith, she boldly reached out, not just touched the tassels in the Greek. She grasped the tassel. She held onto the tassel, and she was healed. The same is true for us. We must have a similar faith. We, too, can seek and must seek to be under his wing, the place of refuge, the place of comfort is under the Lord's kanaf, under the wings of the Lord, under his wings, under his word, under his work on the cross, under his love for us, and under his authority. As always, I quote the Apostle Paul, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he did take the cup, or he took the bread, and he held it, and he broke it, and he said, after he gave thanks, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us eat the bread. In the same way, after a supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us drink the cup. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of looking into your word. We thank you for the work on the cross. We thank you that we can be under your wings to fulfill the destiny that you have for us. We ask that your blessing will be upon this ministry and the message today. Father, may you bless us and keep us. May you make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. And may you turn your face toward us and give us peace. Thank you.
Good morning, everyone. As uh, Rick Bettis mentioned earlier, if we could all just stand up for a moment for the reading of God's Word, please. I'm going to uh, read John 6, 1 through 15. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes, and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And and this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. In honor of our Lord, please take your seats. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When, therefore, the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. May the blessing of our, may the blessing of our Lord be upon this message this morning, for all of us today, and forever. Amen. And now I'm going to give it over to our pastor Robert McLaughlin. Thank you.
Thank you, dear son. You, should, you were a little bit more excited yesterday when we were doing that, though. You were a little bit held back. Yesterday he was acting out the pots. Jesus said, what happened to that guy? You let, you let your wife talk you into that below-key stuff. You know why she does that, though? She's afraid the other ladies here are going to start, you know, taking a good look at you. <clears throat> anyway, good morning, royal family. Let's go. Ready to rock and roll. All right, you're in John chapter 6. That's where we are this morning. We are about to complete our series on the five loaves of bread and the two fishes. I've got another miracle coming up after this one. And uh, I told you this was really not just a miracle at all. This was not really only a miracle. It was a lesson of something that we're going to see again this morning that is very important. What we're going to see is that it is a lesson of how the Lord desires to use that which we have provided for Him within ourselves for Him to use for His own glory. Again, this is a lesson of how the Lord desires to use that which we have provided for Him within ourselves for Him to use for His own glory. And so what we do with the time, the talent, the treasure, the spiritual gift that God has given us, what we do with those things and how we begin to enforce them in our life and how we begin to offer them to the Lord, that determines how much He is going to use us. And I don't know about you, but how many want to be used by the Lord? And by the way, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. You can start right now having the rest of your life really matter. And what a privilege it is when you think about the fact that we are called ambassadors of Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is simply an individual who is sent from a foreign country to, I mean, to a foreign country from this native country. Our native country or our citizenship, Paul said in Philippians 3.20, is not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Remember, God is not in bondage to time, so he sees time, he sees the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. So he recognizes that we are going to be living with him forever and ever as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And what we do in our life right now determines how light our body is going to shine like the stars differ in glory when we receive the resurrection body with rewards that are given to us. Now, we don't know what those rewards actually look like, but we have a glimpse of them as the Apostle John tells us in Revelation 2 and Revelation chapter 3. So again, how is the Lord going to use that which you have provided? That is the issue. And that's what he's going to do with this particular young boy. And so in verses 10 and 11, here comes a miracle. This is the fourth MF. I told you there were five MFs in this particular passage. This is the fourth one. This is called the miraculous feeding. And so in John 6, verse 10, we read, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. 
Now, please notice that we have a more accurate description of what really happened in the other Gospels. And as they all saw the same event, remember I told you in the beginning of this uh, series that we can have four people seeing the same exact event and they'll see it from different perspectives. And so if we really want to get the correct perspective because it is not really given in verse 11, the Gospels tell us something very interesting. It's a, we're going to look at that accurate description of, of what really happened in the other Gospels as they all saw the same event, but they saw it in a different way. They saw it with a different emphasis. Their perspective was totally different. He did not give the food to the, uh, ch- uh, to the children or to the women or to the men. Our Lord didn't do that at all. He gave that food, the five loaves of bread and the two fishes to the disciples. You see, this is why it's not just the miracle because as uh, Rick brought out or someone brought it out this morning, I think it was one of the Ricks brought it out about the fact that you know, there's things that happen in the Word of God, and if we see it from a different perspective, we're all going to see it from a different perspective. And if we do, and the perspective is accurate, we get a much clearer uh, insight into that which God the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal. So I want you to go to Matthew chapter 14 this morning, look at verse 19, because we're going to see that the Lord, this is why we say it's not just a miracle, because the Lord has the disciples involved. Uh, we saw that, yeah, I think it was Rick Tabrick that mentioned that he did perform the miracle with that lady, but he did it on his own. Are you all right, John? Oh, you want your Bible? Okay. I thought you were leaving me. Now, look at Matthew 14, 19. A better, a better picture. It says, And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, notice that this was an order, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves. What did he do next? He kept, that, he kept giving them to the disciples. And this time, something very interesting is going to happen, as we're going to see. You see, he gave them to the disciples. He didn't distribute the food at all. He got the 12 disciples involved. Just like when the Lord wants to perform a miracle. For example, what greater miracle is there in the world than seeing a born again, than seeing a person become born again and saved and living with God forever? There's no greater miracle when you think about that. You've changed and helped change a person's destiny. And instead of them uh, being in a place that uh, God is absent from, which is what we call the lake of fire or hell or Gehenna or whatever you want to call it, instead of those people going in that direction, we get responsible, we are responsible to present to them the gospel as ambassadors and we're going to change the direction that they're going to go in forever and ever. And billions and billions and billions of years from today, those individuals are going to look at you. One individual, couple, maybe a thousand. And they'll say, you know, if it were not for you giving me this truth, I would not be where I am today. And so he gave them to the disciples because he wants the disciples to be involved. And he's going to take the five loaves of bread, the two fishes, that which a little boy provides, and he's going to turn it into one of the greatest miracles that we have in the Word of God. Now, that's what Matthew says. Look at what Mark says about the same situation. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 41. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four disciples 
or four apostles seeing it from a different perspective. Mark writes in Mark 6.41, He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. Now, here's what the Greek says. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, or to set before the multitude. Notice, he divided. What does it say when it says in verse, uh, in verse uh, uh, where is it? Mark 6, in verse 41. Matthew says he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the multitudes. Mark says he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. Notice from two different perspectives. Let's look what Luke says. Luke chapter 9, verse 16. In Luke 9, 16, we have a record of, of the same event. But I want you to notice that this time Jesus is not doing it alone like the Gospel of John seems to say. That's why it's great to have these four Gospels. And, you know, as I told you before, when I first started reading the Word of God, I just thought the book was going to be totally boring because the first four books seemed to be talking about the same stories. Now when we realize they come from a different perspective, we re it's revealed to us certain uh, attributes and certain blessings that are found in the passage that we would not understand if we did not have four different perspectives. Notice in Luke 9:16, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them. Now they all seem to say that. And then he made this statement. He says, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So he kept giving them to the disciples to set, to, so that the disciples would set the food before the multitude. And so again, we have a little different perspective. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I like that because I want you to see that the Lord kept on giving bread and fish to the disciples so that they would distribute to the multitude sitting as much bread and food that they wanted. And that means that we have the tremendous principle of allowing individuals to receive the blessings from God. God gives us the blessings. God gives us the five loaves, the two fishes, as it were. And then he says, I want you to take what I have given you, and I want you to distribute those things among those who are hungry, among those who are thirsty. So we have four different perspectives. The point is that each of these apostles focused in on a different emphasis of what our Lord did. And we can, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can conclude this, that the Lord kept on giving that bread and that fish. He kept on giving it to the disciples. And they never ran out. In fact, there was even some leftovers. They went beyond. He always does exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Amen? You ask God for something, He goes way beyond it. Why? Because we can't even understand what He's about to do. And the Bible says the eye has not seen and the ear has not even heard the things that God has prepared for those who what? Love Him. And so we have no idea about the tremendous blessings that are in the future that we are going to be receiving over and over again because the Bible says He's going to bless us continually for all of eternity. So here again is the lesson that God is pleased to use human instruments. He's pleased to use your feet, that's an instrument, your hands, your head, your arms. God is pleased to use human instruments and give us the privilege of being what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. We're called laborers together with Him. Do you want to be a laborer together with Him? 
Of course you do. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He created the entire universe, and we are said to be laborers together with him. So, in other words, the Lord Jesus Christ fed the hungry multitude, not by himself, but he fed the hungry multitude through his disciples, and they distributed as God gave the increase. And that's the thing that the Apostle Paul brings out. You know, we invest in people's lives. But ultimately, it's God who is the one that gives the increase. We can't control a person's volition. You can give the gospel to them as never before. You can be eloquent. You can be accurate. But that's not going to determine anything unless they believe for themselves on their own. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And always remember, God is the one who wants to give the increase. All he's looking for are individuals who want to be vessels of honor. As Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, vessels of honor so that he can use us and be the, have the instruments of righteousness that he's given to us, his righteousness, and then have the instruments of our human body worship him with that. But I like the fact that God's the one who gives the increase. It's none of our business. We can't make people believe. And the Apostle Paul dealt with this in the early church in Corinth. He said, And I, brethren, I couldn't speak to you as, spirit, as to spiritual people, but I had to speak to you as men of flesh, Carnal individuals, as to babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, not advanced doctrine. Why? You are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. Here's people that have been saved for 20 and 30 years and they were not able to receive the richness of the Word of God. They were in too much bondage to the carnality, to the desires of their flesh. And then he tells us why they, could, they had to have milk and not solid or advanced doctrine. For you are still fleshly or carnal. And how is the carnality and fleshliness revealed? For since there is jealousy and strife among you, jealousy and strife, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They're simply servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now, notice what 6 says. I planted. That's what we do to some people. We can just plant the seed. Apollos watered. Someone comes along and starts watering the seed that we planted and starts feeding those individuals. But God was doing what? He was causing the growth. So that it's neither, neither is the one who plants anything or the one who waters anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field and God's building. Now, this is a passage that is very comforting to me. It's very comforting to those who have been the victim of other individuals who have willfully and knowingly violated certain passages of Scripture like this, such as the one I had to answer on uh, Friday evening, the Q&A period. We, had, uh, we, can, we have our Q&A period, remember, every Wednesday and Friday. We're thinking of doing it on a Sunday morning, on a Lord's Supper Sunday morning, too, so that if you want to stay at the end of the service, after we take the offering, at the end of the service... <laughs> 
uh, you can stay. We're going to do it live for about a half hour and let you see what goes on. But I had to answer a question that came from Romans 15:20, and I want you to turn there. Because they have been, and I have the right to say this because this is absolute truth and I am not defending anything. I am pointing out the principles of Scripture. Look at Romans 15, verse 20. There have been men that I have ordained throughout the years that have willfully and knowingly violated this principle. And not only are they guilty of it, but so is everyone who guilty, who actually supports those endeavors. They're guilty as well. Here it is. Romans 15, 18. The Apostle Paul says this, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles, all non-Jews, by means of the word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel. Notice this now. I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, but I might, that I might not build upon what? Another man's foundation. Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying? He was going to preach the gospel and teaching the word of God, not where Christ was already named, not where Christ has already been established, or not where Christ has already been preached. And he said, so that I might not build upon another man's foundation. And I give you that because the application of this is in Matthew 14, uh, 4, 18. In fact, why don't you go to Matthew, look at uh, 4, verse 18. I give you this because of something very interesting that needs to be dealt with. And it was asked, as I said, on a Q&A period. In fact, I think the individual who asked the question was uh, left when, when the question was being answered. Oh, you were here? He checked it out. All right, good. That's good. You already heard it? No, I haven't heard it. Oh, you haven't heard it yet. All right. You asked the question, I think. But anyway, Matthew 4:18. Walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And here's the famous statement in Matthew 4:19. Here's what our Lord said. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of what? Fishers of men, you see. You see, there are some pastors who don't go fishing for men in their own pond. They go fishing for men in someone else's pond. Instead of going where there is a need, think about this. How can we have individuals who have been ordained in this ministry start a ministry in this area when we are in New England? There is a need for doctrinal churches in Maine. There's a need for doctrinal churches in Vermont. There's a need in for doctrinal churches in New Hampshire. Boston, Massachusetts is one of the greatest places to start a church because there's so many people. There's a need for doctrine there. There's a need for doctrine in Connecticut, for New, in New Hampshire, even Rhode Island. Now, the, the, you can go, instead of doing that and saying, you know what, let's spread out. They want to go fishing in another man's pond. And so they're going to start a church somewhere close or somewhere down the street because they need to get a congregation. And so what they do is they find anyone who's frustrated with a pastor of one congregation and then butter them up like they've never been butted up before and drive them away. Now, I know that that doesn't happen to me because no one has ever been frustrated with me. So I recognize that. 
But the point is, eventually, they're going to live in a little fishbowl aquarium, I call it. A little fishbowl aquarium because they, they are drawing from another man's ministry. Instead of all these people who have needs throughout New England, and that's just New England, let alone other areas of the country. Why do you think our Internet ministry is so big and there's so many people We're in almost every single state? I think we are, in fact. But why is, it, uh, why is it so big? Because there's a need. People are hungry. People are desiring the Word of God. So instead of branching out and sending out people and raising up other people in those particular geographical locations, they want to get as close as they can to the doctrinal pond that's already established. But you see, God gives the increase, doesn't He? And He's going to keep on giving the increase. And our job is not to get bitter or angry, but it has to be pointed out. It's a legitimate question. And the point is they're going to eventually live in a little, that little fishbowl aquarium. You say, why? Well, let me give you a reason why. Luke 16:12 says it like this. If you have not been faithful in a ministry of that which is another's, who will give you that which is what? Your own. I'll repeat it. If you have not been faithful in a ministry of that which is another's, who will ever give you that which is your own? Oh, you'll have some people because everybody gets frustrated with the pastor. You know that. It's inevitable. The more speaking you do, the more chances you have to frustrate people. So if you keep on speaking on a continual basis, it's only a matter of time before you say something that offends people. It's the sound of your voice, whether it's too low or too high. It's the, uh, the temperature in the chapel. It's too cold or too hot. Or you don't like the singing. You don't like the music ministry. You don't like certain people that are uh, in charge in certain areas. You're going to get frustrated. But big deal, wherever you go, you're going to be frustrated because every ministry is made up of sinners. And when you join it, it's going to be worse than it was before you even went. So, Romans 15:20, Paul says, I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named. Who said this? The Apostle Paul. Does that say Bob said? No, it doesn't. Does it say Bobby said? No. Does it say Pe- Robert said? No. I, Paul, aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named or preached, so that I might not build upon another man's foundation. Think about it. Here's a man who has built a foundation of his, on his own through the grace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave the increase. And then another person comes along, builds a ministry somewhere else down the street, and willfully and subtly will draw frustrated members of another man's ministry to himself rather than branching out. The Bible does not say, go into the closest place in your periphery and start a ministry. It says, go into all the what? All the world. It's amazing how people are you called to California and Florida, but no one's called to, like, North Dakota or, or Maine or, someplace, or Alaska. God forbid if God ever, you know, I'd say, God forbid, Alaska. That's, that would be something that I, I don't know if I could handle that any longer. In my younger days, I could, but I, I, don't, I just don't have a problem with Alaska. There's a certain reason, but I won't give it to you. But they should be occupied with what Romans 15:21 says. Here's what 21 says. But as it is written, they who had no news of him, they shall see. And they who have not heard about the Lord Jesus Christ in detail shall understand. And the point is that even though this has and does happen, ultimately the faithful pastor will reap what he sows 
if he stays put and he goes forward in the plan of God and feeds the fish that God has called him to feed in the pond that God has established for his life. And which is why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So the point is, and the lesson behind the passage in John chapter 6 is this. It is the duty and responsibility of every one of you, of every child of God, to pass on to others what the Lord has given to them. Right? What did the Lord give to the the disciples? He gave them five loaves of bread and two fish, except he kept on giving them. And he was not, he didn't perform a miracle by telling the fish. If he said, now you fish, I want you to swim on the grass to eat person and offer yourself food for their belly. No, he said, I'm going to use members of the human race. I'm going to use the disciples. I'm going to give them something that I want them to give to others. And that's what he does to every one of us. It is our duty and our responsibility as a child of God to pass on to others five loaves of bread and the two fish that the Lord has deposited or distributed to each one of us or what the Lord has given to them. Back in John chapter 6. Now, I want you to note that as we continue this study now, because we're going to try to get as much through with this passage as possible, note that the job of the disciples was to faithfully distribute the loaves and the fish. What was their job? Faithfully distribute what God had given to them. Do it faithfully. And by the way, you don't put charge on things that God has given to you, do you? As the Bible says, freely you have received, freely Freely what? Give. In fact, there was a curse. I said it before this past week. In Micah 3, verse 11, there was a curse on the teachers of Israel because they were charging for their teachings. No, the Lord deposits His blessings into our life and we share that which He has deposited with others. I mean, the day that, I was, that someone told me that there was no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is a day that I'll never forget because someone was faithful depositing that passage on grace and security and confidence that there's no condemnation for me forever and ever. And if that person didn't distribute that news to me, I would have never known it. God needs you to distribute the ministry, to distribute the needs of the ministry. Or when I say to distribute to the people needs in the ministry, God needs you. God needs us. Look at these chairs. We've got some, we've got some free chairs now. God, I'd love to see those chairs filled. You know, but that's going to happen if we are faithful to God. He'll give the increase. Our job is to distribute what God has given to us. When's the last time you brought someone to church? When's the last time you distributed to someone the news about the glorious gospel and Bible doctrine and the Word of God that's alive and powerful? When's the last time you brought someone and had them sit right next to you in the chair that's empty by your side right now? And God's called us to do it because we have said, He said, follow me and I will make you fishes of what? Fishes of men. So I want you to see that the job of the disciples was to faithfully distribute the loaves and the fish or faithfully distribute what God has given to us. Secondly, they were not to make the man, men evaluate the bread before they received it. I'm talking about the 5,000. They didn't say, I want you to evaluate this bread. 
I want you to make sure it's all right. They were not to make the men eat. They were not to make people, uh, people, uh, you know, have to do it their way. They were not to make the men evaluate the bread before they received it. Neither were they to make them eat. Their job was to distribute. See, my job is I can't make you believe what I'm saying this morning. I can't make you appreciate the Lord's Supper that we had this morning. I can't make you take the Lord's Supper. I can't force you to believe what I'm teaching. My job is to faithfully distribute the food. And those who want to eat can get that food. And you perceive, you metabolize, and you what? You apply. And your words were found in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. And I ate them. The Word of God, I ate. That's what Jeremiah said. I found your words, your words were found, and I ate them. So as I distribute the Word of God to you, it's right before your eyes. And you can faithfully perceive it and metabolize it. You eat it, and now it becomes available for your application. So their job was to distribute. They were not to force people to take the bread and force people to take the fish. And let me say this. They were not to condemn the people into eating. A lot of preachers get behind the pulpit and they use condemnation and guilt, especially when it's time to take the offering. You can guilt someone. Someone told me a good way to get a good offering this past week. And it was all, you, this is what the person said. You've got to get the people really emotional. And don't give them time to think. Tell them that you have a need and when they write the check, make them write the check and get that check in the bucket as soon as possible because they're going to say, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Don't let them think. You see, get them really emotional. Show some pictures on the board of starving children in India and say, these kids are starving because of you, brothers. You, brothers, you have something in your back pocket right now, and this is just simply paper with pictures on it. And let me tell you something, that paper with pictures is meaningless. Oh, yeah, so you give me the paper with with the pictures, you see? I always get a kick out of pastors that say that they go, if you want to be blessed by God, you need to sow a seed. Why don't the pastor sow a seed? You see, instead of him, why is he always got to be the recipient of the seed rather than him sowing the seed? And say, you know what, I'm going to give and see if the Lord gives back to me. Or I'm going to give because I desire to. And I don't know about you. I've practiced that throughout my lifetime, and many of you have. And you can't tell me you haven't had your you haven't been blessed by that. You, you can't tell me the joy that comes from giving is greater is not greater than the joy that comes from receiving because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive isn't it that's why a lot of people have a difficult time of receiving you got to get rid of that attitude i tell people all the time they say oh no no i don't want anything i don't want anything i go to give them something no oh no i don't want it i don't want it i don't want it i'm doing that for free no you see you're depriving me of the blessing of giving I want to be blessed. And you say, nope, you can't be blessed. Why? I'm not going to receive your gift because I'm humble. Damn fool. If you were humble, you'd receive the gift, number one. And by the way, next time I do that, receive the gift, then go out and buy me a gift with the money that I gave you. Added to, you know, add a little few more bucks to it because the dollar that you're going to get is not going to go that far. But the pastor's responsibility is to seek bread. Or the word himself at the hands of the Lord. That was the apostle's responsibility. The pastor's responsibility is to seek the bread or the word himself at the hands of the Lord. And then his responsibility, set it before the people. If they want to eat, so be it. If they don't, so be it. If they have that right. Maybe they want to go home and think about it. In Acts 17:11, they search the scriptures to see if what they're being taught is so. 
They have that right. You don't force people to eat, but you make the food available. Now, what the people do with the bread, therefore, or the Word of God, is strictly their own right and their responsibility, and that's where the doctrine of privacy comes in. It's people's right. And that's why you have to guard your privacy in this local assembly or any assembly. When I say that, don't let anyone manipulate you into action. And that's why we don't... I I really dislike when people walk around this building and try to sell things to other Christians. I'm against that. If I see it, I'm going to stop it. Because the worst people you can do business with are Christians. Trust me. They can be the greatest people in the world and the worst ones in the world. Especially if they're saying, we're going to do this for Jesus' sake. Yeah, okay. You know, if I hit the lottery for Jesus' sake, I'm going to get 50% to the Lord. All right, number one, you're not going to give 50% anyway, because that's a lie. But number two, big deal. You're still getting 50%. What do you think? God needs your 50%? No. God just wants you to understand. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And he's going to set before you that food. And I love what it says in the, uh, the closing passages in John chapter 6, when it says they were to eat as much as they wanted, as much as they desired. Why? Because when God blesses you in Psalm 23, 5, what runs over? Your cup runneth over. And what is that? That's the cup of joy. How many have joy here this morning? They're running over? It sure should. You should have joy, Steve. You're marrying a beautiful young lady next month. You know, it's next month. Next month. You're a lucky man. And you're a good man too, Steve. And you're a gracious man. I've seen your graciousness throughout the last couple of years. And you've come through for this ministry when no one else did. Not that they could. A lot of people desire to, but they can't. But I view in action and God has given you a blessing. Now, we'll take a good offering this one, is that Steve? <laughs> he's the kind of guy that would do that too. But anyway, he's, he's very faithful. Now, as we saw on Friday, humility and grace orientation are always related to grace promotion. It says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will what? Promote you. Humility, being humble and having grace orientation. Let me tell you something. Humility is not talking soft. It's not walking and shuffling your feet and looking down and say, praise be to God. That's not humility. Humility is you recognizing who you are in Christ, that you are what you are by the grace of God, and that you have just as much right as the apostles did to take the five loaves of bread and the two fishes that the Lord gives you. You have just as much right to distribute them among individuals. That's why he said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to heaven. But Peter said, okay, you give me the keys to heaven. What did Peter do? He passed out those keys to 3,000 people in one day. And they all had now a key to lead people to heaven. Do you realize the power, the power that you have to actually change the destiny of an individual? To help someone who is an addict in any form? You know, addiction doesn't just take place in drugs or alcohol. Addiction can take place in sex. It can take place in food. It can take place in money, materialism. It can take place with power and approbation lust. Addictions come in all form, and yet we have the ability 
to change and get rid of the addictions that people go through by distributing the Word of God, which was given to us, that He wants us to be able to give to others. And so that's why humility and grace orientation is always related to God promoting you. Grace promotion. What's the, the, the saying that we've said throughout the years? If God doesn't promote you, you're not what? You're not promoted. There's a lot of men that stand behind the pulpit and they say, well, God is promoted. No, God did not promote you. You stole things from other people and you promoted yourself. But it's only a matter of time that there's not going to be an increase. And I don't know about you, but I've seen it throughout the years. And we've seen it as a local assembly in Isaiah 54:17. No weapon that is formed against us shall what? prosper, and this is the heritage of those who are children and heirs of God. So, humility, with humility comes teachability. The humble person can be taught. They love to be taught. They don't sit there being critical. You always have people, especially visitors, who they want to hear one message, and they're going to evaluate the pastor based upon that one message. I mean, he could be laying an egg for once in the, the last month, by the way, or a year. You know what laying an egg is, don't you? It's when he, his message smells. <laughs> you get the picture. You know what? I've had those. And the first thing I try to do is get them offline or get them the tape destroyed. <laughs> I've laid a lot of eggs throughout the years, more than a lot of chickens. But, you know, i got a congregation that even though I lay an egg, they're still going to be back the next week building me up and edifying me and distributing back to me what I've invested in them. That's great orientation. Thank you for that. Because humility brings us to teachability, and from teachability comes doctrinal orientation. Now we can make decisions based upon doctrine. Who are the prepared people? The prepared people are those people who have what? Bread. And bread, what is bread? Bread represents Bible doctrine. Jesus Christ said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It represents who Jesus Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Bread represents the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. It's a reference to coming down from heaven or the Word becoming flesh, as we've seen before. We know that because look at John 6, verse 32. Notice what the Lord said in verse 32. Were you in John 6? Oh, good. I'm wondering why I don't hear those sweet sounds of the pages rattling. But Jesus therefore said to them, in verse 32... Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the what? World. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And then he made this statement, just like we just celebrated this. We just ate bread this morning when we broke bread at the Lord's Supper. Jesus said to them, I am what? I am the bread. I am the bread of Zoe, the bread of life, supernatural life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So the principle that I want you to see again in this passage is God uses prepared people. And the Lord Jesus Christ did not look at the loaves and the fish and mock them because they were few in number. 
He was just happy that someone had something and made that something available to him so that he could use it and have it multiplied by means of putting his disciples to work. And they, he kept on creating, creating. That was a mountain of creation. The real miracle there was the fact that he was still creating. He created those fish. He, that was the best bread, buns of bread and the best fish they probably ever ate in their entire life. Because God only provides the best, doesn't he? Everything he does, he gives us the best. It gets better and better as life goes on, doesn't it? Age, we get older and older, but we get smarter and smarter when we have doctrine resident in our soul. And life is something fantastic, especially, it's so fantastic, especially when you live in, in, when you no longer live in that great sin that can drive you crazy, the sin of fear. And when I talk about fear, I'm basically talking about the fact that most people live in fear of death. You know why? They don't believe the bread that came down from heaven. He said, because he said, in my father's house there are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare one just for you. And that's what he's done. And so when he dies, when we die, he says, when you die, you're going to be absent from that body in one second, and you're going to be billions and billions of light years away from a time in the eternal state, and you're going to be absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. And then you're going to be in that place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. Why? Because someone distributed to you the bread and the fish the day that you were hungry and you wanted truth and you no longer wanted the lies that were being perpetuated in the cosmic system, which is actually the lies that come from the devil, who is a liar, the Bible says, from the beginning. Satan creates a lot of things and he doesn't really create things, he perverts it. He perverts sex so that it now becomes immorality for a lot of people. He perverts money because people now have God as their money. He, per he perverts anything that God does. And one thing he loves to pervert, he loves to pervert the Word of God to try to get us to live in fears and lies that do not exist. He is a liar from the beginning. And so throughout the Word of God, God has used small and weak things to fulfill his plan. For example, go to the Gospel of Mark. We've got about five minutes and I'm going to have to close because of the time. But most of you are familiar with the widow's mite, aren't you? Remember, the widow's mite, think about it. She gave from her, she did not give from the leftovers that she had. She gave from all that she had. She gave all that she had. So impressive was that to the Lord that he put it down in the Word of God as a part of his mind. If the Bible is the mind of Christ, he thinks about this lady constantly in heaven because of what she did. In Mark 12:41, he sat down opposite the treasury. Now, he's looking at the treasury in Mark 12:41, and he's watching the Jews as they're going up to the treasury. And he began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. But a poor widow came, and a poor widow came, and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a penny. One cent. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put more than all the contributors to the treasury. Why? For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put all she what? Owned. If in all that she had to live on. She gave it all to the Lord. The Lord used the small widow's might 
as an example to us of what to expect. He used the tear of a baby to move the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. The baby was Moses. Pharaoh's daughter heard Moses crying when he was a baby floating down the Nile River. And he used that tear to get the attention of Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh actually took the baby home. I mean, Pharaoh's daughter took the baby home. And all of a sudden, that baby became the man who led the children of Israel in the exodus out of the Egyptian race. The passage is fantastic. We don't have time to see it, but it's given in Luke chapter, I mean, Exodus chapter 2. If you look to Exodus chapter 2, it's given from verses 1 to 10. And then he used the rod of Moses, just a little rod. Moses had a rod to work mighty miracles in Egypt. Exodus 4, 1 through 5. Just a little tiny rod, just a little thing. He uses small things. He used those four, five barley loaves and the two uh, fish to change the world with the heal, with the feeding of those, the 5,000. He used, the Lord used David's sling. He had a slingshot. And he had a, a small pebble, a small stone. It wasn't a big one. He used David's slingshot and a small stone to overthrow Goliath, the Philistine giant. In fact, he always gives us more than what we deserve. He knows, he knows what's about, where, what we are about to face. And little did David know when he reached down and he picked up five small stones that each one of those stones represented four other brothers in Goliath's family. And he actually had all of, those, all of them killed by using the stone, that little pebble, the small thing, a little boy called David. He was faithful in that which was a little and God gave him that which was a lot, so much so that he says, David is a man after my own heart, and he will rule with Jesus Christ during the millennial. He used the little child, as in our passage, John 6, to teach his disciples a much-needed lesson in humility. In Judges 15:15, he used a man named Samson to kill a thousand men with a jawbone of an ass. Imagine that. A jawbone of an ass. That doesn't mean a person, by the way. It's an animal. Although there are a lot of individuals that are asses that do have uh, awful jawbones. They move too much, you see. It's called tongue action, which is, again, something that could destroy things. But the Bible says this in Zechariah 4, verse 10. It says, do not despise the day of small things. Amen to that? Don't despise it. I mean, you take that presentation that Rick gave this morning. He went out and bought, bought that shawl just for that presentation. He bought me one, too. You know, I didn't want to wear it because I didn't want to take it away from him. But, you know, it was a small thing. But it took hours. It took a lot of studying. And he only, he only spoke for about 10 or 15 minutes. But it was something small that he used, but it has a great impact on our lives. To this day now, you'll be remembering what that is all about, what the phylacteries were all about, and why the Pharisees walked around with those, the, the, those tassels hitting the ground because they wanted everyone to think that they're spiritual. So I'll close with Luke chapter 17 and verse 1, and then we'll close and take our offering and allow you to enjoy the rest of the day. In Luke 17, 1, he said to his disciples, <clears throat> notice he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. 
Be on your God. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, this is a sinning toward you, not just sinning regularly. But if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith, just like a mustard seed, a small amount of faith. You don't have to have great faith. But if you have faith like a mustard seed, you would be able to say to the mulberry tree, the big obstacle that's in your way, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I said this was my last passage, and I can't, I can't, not, I can't let you go without reading my last passage, because I see it coming up. I'm going to give it to you now. I promise this is my last passage. I just rebounded for lying to you, so I'm back in fellowship. First Corinthians chapter 1. Let's close with this. A good place to close. First Corinthians chapter 1. Don't you love the Word of God this morning? Don't you love being together with the royal family? The Lord's Supper, music, the worship, everything that goes on. It's fantastic. But I want you to, in verse 26, consider your calling. <laughs> consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh. There's not many mighty. There's not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish ones of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak ones of the world to shame the, the, those things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. He's chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, so that no man should boast before who? Before God. And Paul goes on later to say, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about what God has done for me. Five loaves of bread and two fish. It's all yours. Now the issue is, what are you going to do when you're being fed? Are you going to eat it, which means metabolize it, and then apply it? Or are you going to let it just go by and wait for another time? When could, today could be the last day of your life. Now is the day of your salvation or your deliverance, Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 6. Let us pray. We are grateful, Father, for the privilege that you've given us this morning to gather together and to study your word. We thank you for the fact that we have the ability to take that which you have distributed to us to give us the opportunity to lay down our lives for others and lead people to the eternal state. And Father, we dedicate this message in closing. We dedicate the closing moments of this message in this, uh, this service to those who have never been born again to give them the opportunity to make the greatest decision that they could ever make. The Bible says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. And when, you see, when we say believe, we don't just say you believe that he exists. The word believe actually means to cling to, rely on, and re realize that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you want him not just as your Savior, but also as the Lord, the Lord of your life. So you can tell God right now, forming the sentences and thought only, that you're willing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. For the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Now, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all that was said this morning and all the time of worship that we've had. May your blessing be upon the closing moments of our service right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Um, Rick.
Do you have that thing I wanted you to read? Yes. You got the pages? We are going to, we have to address our internet people for one second, so, because they had not, uh, they have not heard us for almost two weeks. So, uh, we announced this on Wednesday and Friday. This will be the last announcement, but this also goes for those of you who are here and what happened and why we were offline and what is needed. Rick? Thank you, Pastor. It's a great message, right? Always, always. We want to thank our, our internet congregation as well as you, as well as you folks um, who listen to us and watch us download our doctrinal teachings here. And we want to thank you for, our, for your patience um, with the problems we've had on the website. Because of the constant changes which are taking place throughout the internet, we've been forced to have and decided to basically upgrade our server as well as the equipment needed. And uh, there's technicians that come with this process as well. So we need to improve the quality of our website so this problem won't happen again. So this is just how it is. If you, anybody understands computers, you know every five years there's a new computer that comes out, or every five years yours slows down or something happens. We're in one of those modes where we need to upgrade. And as many of you folks know, we started an Internet ministry almost 20 years ago with Rick Kabrick. Please give him a round of applause. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I got to look at the camera and the internet people and, and hit you right in the heart. <laughs> we really do appreciate you being patient and all you've done. Um, with all these changes, we've had to hire some advanced technicians and we're looking at some new equipment. So uh, this is part of us moving forward as a ministry and giving you the best that we can give from this ministry and being state of the art. That's what we want to do. So we don't want to fall behind. And, um, we, again, we apologize for the last couple of weeks. It's been difficult. And I know it's really, really bothered Pastor because he's got so many folks out on the Internet that he's connected to over the years, you know. And, and um, they look forward to Pastor's messages, and they feel connected to us through the Internet. So uh, let's keep those folks in prayer that they keep going forward. They realize we hit a little glitch here, and we're going to get over it, and we're going to move forward. And with this message that we got this week, I thought about that little boy that made himself available. And that's all we need to do. He made himself available. 5,000 men were there, and it probably was 10,000 people, as Pastor pointed out, because the women and children weren't counted. But I'm sure there was plenty of men in the periphery of Jesus Christ when they were having the conversation about the, the amount of food. And I think it's kind of funny that it was just a little boy that made himself available. And, and there was, I'm sure there was men there because in the ancient world, everybody traveled. They knew they had to travel for days. They would carry satchels and baskets with them with food. But it's a little boy that came forward. And he probably had that food for his family, and he still was just there available with it. Like, okay, I know the Lord's going to take care of it. He had the right mentality. And that's all I ask that you have this morning, the right mentality as we give. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Father, we ask that you show the, the congregation here to reveal their love for you in how they want to do it and how they feel moved to do it, Father. We know it's motivation. We ask for this, and we ask for them to show their appreciation for all you do for them, Father, through your Son's precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>